perfect. It's absolutely perfect. Well, um, I just look here. I've just pressed record because the way I like to do it, it's just an informal chat. It's just like um, it, I always describe this show. It's not really a show. It's um, an exercise in nepotism. Just talking to the people I like in the community and just just chatting things out really. And after we got to talking about the Ziomaro evidence that time, um, and you did that awesome bit of investigative work, which you know, after seeing it in action seemed to me like the most obvious thing to do, but why didn't I do it? I just didn't think they would answer. And yet there uh, you had it, you got the information. After that bit of work, anyway, which we'll talk about later, I just thought, well, I've got to talk to this guy. I've got to talk to Charles and see what's going on in his head and just extract all of the techniques <laughs> and the algorithms that make, you know, that make him a successful researcher. Here we are. Sure. Well, I'm proudly a member of the Turtle Clan of the Ganyagahaga, and it's the people of the land of the Flint, also oh. known as the Mohawks. Mohawks. Okay, I've heard of that, of course. And we're and we're known as diplomats. So I take that seriously. I've I've gained abilities from interacting with people in my clan, with other clans, as well as then in a in a sometimes formal but mostly informal intergovernmental role. And so I just tried to transpose some of that into our Zuyu Meru research. And um we did have some success there in response. I haven't given up. I've continued to ring some mm -hmm. bells and that's where we're at there. But uh, I'm prepared to take it all the way to the top and I will find a friendly scientific minded person to enlist and see if they can help us get to that point where at least the material can be located. Then it's some of the that matter of sometimes you get what you wish for. Mm. who will pay for the testing but then that might be a good problem to have i think yeah and if that's our only problem i think that's the least of it then we can get those those people who might be able to help in that respect get them energized and you know and ready to get on board i i mean i speaking to scott and scott's a, a good friend of mine I really respect his research he's been at it for so long and he's always so open about what he's he's discovered with everybody in the community speaking to him about that i was really excited to say wow actually yeah i mean we have eDNA. we can you know we can actually detect the type of shark that's been used in the shark fin soup that's how good um this, this method is now if we get hold of that sample the zeomaru sample oh wow what could we find out would it prove yet again we're just looking at the elastidin from an outsized basking shark it would be outsized at that at that uh, sample um that was discovered on the zero or is it is it something else the, the that um the holy grail that we researchers are always looking for there's so many methods now anyway i thought it was it was fantastic sleuthing work and it got me energized again and it got me thinking about that that phrase that always pops into my head normally when I want something, but I don't think people will, will give it to me or will help me with it, which is don't don't make their decisions for them. Don't assume the answer is no until you've asked and got that no, you know. And uh, yeah, they're fantastic. So tell me, tell me more about you. Say you're you're from the 
I don't know how to refer to it, as the Mohawk Nation or the Mohawk Tribe. You talked about being involved in intergovernmental diplomacy. Is that within the tribes or also with the, the U.S. government? Yeah, I'd say it's multifaceted. Uh, Turtle Clan it, it caucuses within itself in order to come to some decisions. You hear a lot of rhetoric about the clans being the forerunner of the U.S. Constitution. We would serve one branch of government, and then we turn it over to the Wolf Clan. The Wolf Clan and the Turtles then begin to deliberate. And then when we come to a conclusion, this is, a con- this is the process by which consensus is reached. And then the Bear Clan becomes the third arbiter of the discussion. And you continue to refine the argument or the dialogue as it goes through that process. It could take a while. Sometimes it's very routine. But then when you come to a unity within this, and I'm going to refer to our longhouse as a government, then you can take your government and apply it or interact with other governments. And we have the tribe, which is federally recognized by the United Mm. States government. You have the First Nation uh, tribal band councils, uh, and they are uh, Canadian recognized. And Mm -hmm. where our community is, it's right on the border between Ontario, the province of Ontario, Mm -hmm. the province of Quebec, the St. Lawrence River right there. And then our people are literally on the 45th parallel. So we're halfway between the equator and the North Pole. And um, we enjoy a unique position, not only within other tribal groups, but also within our own confederacy. And you may Uh be familiar with the five nation Iroquois confederacy. Now it's the six nations, the Tuscarora are in there, but we were kind of the stubborn ones. We were the ones that if you couldn't convince us that the whole bury the hatchet under the tree wasn't Mm. going to work. We were the keepers of the Eastern door. We came in a lot of contact with the Jesuit missionaries. We came in contact with a lot of the French traders and trappers. And there was, again, an infiltration first with the French, with Mm -hmm. us. But the Dutch were also a predecessor of them. And we have agreements with not only the the Dutch people and the and the the government of the Netherlands, but also with the French. Not so much because we were allies with the British. Mm-hmm. And we suffered for that because at the end of the Revolutionary War, we then departed into Canada mm-hmm. for some protection, but we were also protecting loyalists who were driven out of the colonies. Mm-hmm. And then in the War of 1812, there was another upheaval there. Most of our people are in Canada, so to speak. We consider ourselves a distinctive and autonomous nation. It would make all the sense in the world to have us trade with other countries. We've got the international seaway right there. However, there are some prohibitions the U.S. likes to place on us, and and we're constantly pushing back on those aspects of the, um, you know, the tethers. I don't want to say like we're confined, but Mm. we've done our best to 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 really make an effort to kind of keep ourselves distinct because if we don't use that sovereignty you lose it and um, that's very true that's very true i i've uh, i've learned an awful lot uh, uh since i've i moved back to the reservation from an urban family existence not mm-hmm. a lot of people do that at this point 70 percent of the native americans live in cities 
So mm-hmm. I've kind of broken the trend a little bit doing that. It's been very rewarding. So, I mean, I think what's probably important, what stands out about that to me is the mission you've undertaken is one not that you found yourself in, but when you've sought out, you've gone back to the reservation, you've sought out that mission to, to undertake those roles and those duties within um, within your nation. Now, something that I can relate to about what you're talking about is I come from a mixed family, Irish, English mixed family, but primarily Irish, but we grew up in Wales, both Celtic nations. Now, the Ireland of Ireland is an independent country, but Northern Ireland is part of Britain still, and Wales is it's a nation, as is Scotland and, and Cornwall and England. However, we are part of the United Kingdom, and Wales doesn't really have a lot of say or power. Now, we do have devolved governments now, so we're, we're kind of an autonomous region, I suppose you could class this as. Is the Mohawk Nation in Canada, uh, on the reservation at least, is that an autonomous region or an autonomous area that makes its own laws to govern its own people in the same way as perhaps the Welsh Assembly would do so for the nation of Wales in the UK? Is it a similar situation or, or not quite? You may have heard of something called the Great Law of Peace, and we call it Gaina Lagoa, Bright Beautiful Path. And that was really what saved us from killing each other. We were very fierce against each other at the point that it was understood we were going to be mutually assuring our own destruction. We then banded together, and there's under the Hiawentha Wampum, you see that purple flag uh, representing the Iroquois Confederacy. It's uh-huh. not as, as as united as maybe someone would hope. There's some romanticism within that theory. There is some intrusion of the Catholic and the Christian faith into the uh, cultural uh, system, which I can only say is inevitable given the yeah. that we're just surrounded by it. But so many other okay. tribes were relocated out to the West and then history never heard from them again. And it was mm. attempted with small numbers of our people that were convinced to go out there. And yet most of us stayed intact or, you know, as a community. Mm. And that's why our numbers are growing. This is a very, very depopulated area of the United States where I'm com- commenting from. And it's not because it's not good living here, but the industrialization you know, when the seaway went through, it was the largest mm-hmm. project that had been ever undertaken for as far as capital investment. And one of the byproducts of that was industrial uh, industrialization of the hydropower. But then we suffered pollution and are the effects of pollution. And there's three EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, Superfund sites within 15 miles of the reservation. Okay. Which is wow. very disproportionate. But what it would do is it would create gigantism within some of the fish that our people were fishing. And initially, I think they might have seen it as a bounty. So they're mm-hmm. eating these large fish, but they're not realizing they're compacting these PCBs, poly mm-hmm. um, chloro, um, chemical uh, bodies that are used in electrical equipment. Okay. And um, within a generation, you saw... Uh, arthri- arthritic conditions that reminded you of John Merrick, the elephant man. 
Oh, really? it was it was staggering uh, what wow. it did to the joints, and it just created rheumatoid like um, visualization. Yeah. And now you're really told don't eat more than a, one fish a month. That's a single fish that you actually catch in the seaway. So it's, it's because it's, of this pollution. Absolutely, yeah, wow. and it's saturated into the ground, into the water, into the ground, and now it's been around so long it's actually gone airborne. So it's affected our men, the testosterone levels lower. It's affected our adolescent youth, um, their testosterone in the males is low. And in the women, the breast milk is contaminated. So these are traumatic issues, but we've, we've retained a foothold here. And although there is a brain drain in general around us, we're the growing community here in this so-called border region. We don't recognize the border because we weren't asked to for our opinion on it. The 1783 treaty with Paris created this. And um, unfortunately, the British left us out, even though they took somewhat of a benefactory role with our yeah. our uh, connections. Well, we have a history of that. <laughs> By the way, the Arabs have a saying or they used to have a saying about the British. It said that it's better to have the British as your enemies than your friends. If you're their enemies, they'll try to buy you. If you're their friends, they'll try to sell you. <laughs> wow. And that's that's their saying. That's their old saying about the British, at least about the empire. But it, I think it still holds true. You know, that um, we're known as a diplomatic nation as well, but as well as a conquering nation. And that's within that diplomacy, I think, is is tactical guile. That's within all forms of diplomacy. Um, I would like to say that those days obviously are long behind a country like this. And I, I feel no um I feel no compunction to wear the, the mantle of, of those the deeds of those others. That's nothing to do with me. But um it's it's strange. It's strange how it, it affects a nation and how it affects, you know, the world at large. It always amazes me that essentially all over the world people are speaking English or some form of it. Uh, even myself being a, uh, from a, a Celtic background, being here in England, where I live now in London, I realize every day, talking to people from a thousand nations all over the world, I can recognize my language in a thousand accents. I know what's been said, and it's, it's a strange state of affairs, isn't it? It's almost like it's the, the leftover, the remnant of something that was that is no more. But it's still this strange remnant, even if you, um, uh, just in, in, in similar similarity to, if you go back to, to big biblical times, you know, times of Jesus, for example, or the Romans and the, uh, the Jews in Palestine at that time, they primarily, and most people in that region spoke to each other in Greek, not because the Romans preferred to use Greek, these conquerors, but because that was the lingua franca of, at the region at that time, you know, that here we are again, you know, with English. Um, it's just a strange set of affairs. But, but going back to what you were saying about about the nations, uh, the Mohawk nations especially, do you do you rec you don't recognize that border that's in place now? But do you recognize it when you cross it, or do you have ways to cross without being uh, that are not through the ordinary, uh, the, the regular channels. Can you cross the border without being right. seen? I guess is what I'm asking. Right now, after after 9/11, there was a an, an uptick in the detection devices that were employed along the border. 
But in the 80s, it was like Baywatch, St. Lawrence River style with the people going back and forth on jet, uh, you know, water, water jets going oh, wow. back and forth. And, and cigarettes are moved through the, the area red, readily. We've got three recognized federal manufacturers on the U.S. part. But there's a great number of people that also are involved in that trade that don't worry about yeah. licensing. There's a demand for that product and it drives the industry. I've commented on the, on the community that because cannabis is the big item right now on the reservation. And so it started on the Ontario side, then the Quebec side got some, and now on the U S side, it's been. Okay. For medical, medical marijuana growing for supply. Yeah. Of course, because you can grow on the reservation, you make your own law about it. Well, you, well, actually, I like I don't know how familiar you are with the marijuana trade in the U.S., but there's a part of California called the Golden Triangle, okay. and we're essentially in the Golden Triangle of New York here, with uh, the amount of marijuana that comes through the reservation. And I don't make any excuses about it. Y- you know, any publicity is good publicity, and now we have to make the most of this um, image that we've gathered commercially. Uh, um, we don't really grow it here because it tends to be hydroponically grown. But you uh-huh. mentioned medical marijuana. This is actually at the consumer level. It's not requiring a medical prescription or, okay. um, uh, you know, a referral by a doctor. Oh, I understand. I understand. But we do have internal regulations we've developed. We do have the material tested. It's individually packaged. It adds some overhead to the to the cost. But people want that. I live briefly in Ohio, and unfortunately, you were finding the fentanyl drug being used to lace any number of other products. Oh, and a terrible, um, terrible substance. Oh, it's just it's it's ravaging Ohio. Uh, you'll find people in comatose states and parking lots in their cars oh. overdosing. Sometimes the children will be in the back seat. Oh, so. You can't look at the addiction necessarily just in a, you know, everyone has their own blend of it. And, um, okay. you know, with us, we haven't had the fentanyl so much, but it's made some appearance coming particularly from Montreal. We're closer okay. to Montreal on our territory than we are to Syracuse, for instance, which is one okay. of our larger cities here in New York. Um, yeah. we're, we're further north than Lake Placid. If you remember, there was some Olympic games is. here yeah, and it's, you know, people would say, boy, that's, that's very cold up there, but we're two hours north of it. So we've, um, uh, th- th- there was a movie, uh, in 2008 called frozen river that dealt with some human trafficking. It okay. goes on. I mean, we're concerned about it, yeah. but we also want to be proactive And in fact, I've written as a national columnist for the Indian Country Today Media Network Mm -hmm. that we need to have a circular border around our our community. And we enforce that because we don't want to be exploited. We Mm want to really be assertive for ourselves. We're not good as wards of the state. We're just a little too forward leaning. Is it a case that essentially people have taken advantage of some of the the liberties of the reservation to to move products or the human traffic or to move illegal illegal products through thinking that perhaps people on the reservation either won't do anything about it uh, and the government can't come in and get involved. So it's a a safe area to 
to carry out these activities. Is that right? Or have I got the wrong impression completely? Yeah. I mean, when you refer to it as illegal, I'm going to refer to it as non-taxable. And so that's Uh, where the illegality, both for Canada and the U.S. comes into play. And of course, we didn't develop these cigarette machines. They were brought here. Um, you know, the, the corporations were using export only cigarettes, taking them to one part of the reservation, turning around and having it then shown as having entered the country. And then the profit margin became much wider. And this, this was in the eighties, nineties started to slow down a little bit. We had something that's been referred to as a civil war here. It involved Mm -hmm. some factions that were Catholic Also, there was the, again, the longhouse belief and a lot of that's an oil and water kind of mixture. It's a little different now. The Catholicism is a little more old school. You kind of, we went through a real drought of our language at one point and there was, Mm -hmm. there were emergency measures that were put into place in order to preserve it. And now most of the young people have some working fluency of the language. That's good. It's good, but you know, there's some differences between those that were educated in their own homes only with the oral tradition of their parents. And then when you go into a classroom, they've, ad- mm. they've adapted it for visual learning. So there is something lost, but It'll again, always happen. I, I yeah. wonder about this actually, and I know we'll get into cryptids and things in a while, but just out of curiosity, really know nothing about um, First Nations cultures in the US. Now, I wondered about the step with the world. You mentioned Catholicism and other things or a visual learning of the language taking place in classrooms. Now, in Wales, we had a situation where in the 19th century, the Welsh language it was almost completely extinct. It was spoken in sort of rural areas and, and farms, but the English, they actually introduced something called the Welsh knot, which was something that you wore around your neck if you were caught speaking Welsh, which meant that nobody could trade or do business with you. And that was a, a law to stamp out the language. And yet they, the people, they kept it alive throughout Wales. Now as a background, actually Welsh is one of the, well, it's a variation of the original Celtic language of Britain, Brythonic. So it's, you know, it's important to the country. Now with all of the reintroduction that's happened from the devolved government, over the last 20 or so years, my nieces and nephews and young people, they they all speak some level of it in school or they school in it. Some of them first language Welsh and then English second. Has, but of course, you know, that, that wouldn't be taking place in an older format the way it used to be taught in Welsh. Is it really an issue for the Mohawk nation that things aren't handed down in, language, for example, in the traditional way, since this is the 21st century. So 21st century Mohawk kids are going to want to learn you know, online and through visual um, presentations and the way everybody else does. Is that really a problem? Or do you think there needs to still be some sort of balance between these old traditions that people want to keep alive and acknowledging that the kids are 21st century kids and they need things you know, in the, in the, to be delivered in a similar way to their, their peers. Yeah, I guess I would compare it maybe a little bit like my father was a tool and die maker and he worked with his hands and he could make a tool and he could examine a tool that was factory made. And although he could use it, I think he was aware there was inefficiencies built into the mass produced 
output product versus himself as a self-made he's good with math and it turns into drafting and then he's able to actually he's very accomplished as a as a a person that worked with his hands had some college he was a world war ii veteran i I was late in life and for him Uh, but you know it gave me an interesting perspective so when i think about what you're asking i think technology is going to come full circle because if somehow we can put a USB, and I know this sounds, you know, like, okay, this is a little too quick to solve mm. the problem. And USB, the older speakers that were completely handmade, mm. you're going to be able to then take that vocabulary and transpose it into a learning module, I believe, that if you want to learn Mohawk, it will be able to be instructed to you in a way that you have at least a vocabulary. Then mm. the phonetics, the phonetics become another issue getting it out of you is going to be the next factor what what i think you'll see these expert speakers that were homegrown is they say that the there's a mechanical delivery to some of these younger people Mm. and that until that becomes the norm there's going to be like a wine wine critic type of a um understanding there that it's Mm. you know the fermentation of that homegrown home educated speaker is is unparalleled but most people don't have the patience to 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 come to that knowledge in that way and, and i'll be honest i can All read the time. It to, yes yeah. i can read it to some extent but it is not my gift my yeah. gift is in the english language and it's because i read comic books when i was younger mm. and i developed a significant vocabulary i'm almost like a rapper i don't know what i'm going to say until a second before i say it and it's almost like out of the ether, I'm able to pull it out of the Akashic record almost. I've gone and done public speaking where I never prepared anything and I channeled the audience. And and I I had people say the hair was standing up on my arms when you were talking. So again, we have to find that gift within us in order to, you know, kind of hit then those opportunities or possibilities professionally. It's different for every person, of course. It's different for every person in the world and um you know i think that um yeah we we even explain it to our children uh, every day you know one of them is a, a very natural and accomplished artist the other one is a fantastic at dancing but they don't have the same gift one is great with math the other one is great with uh, with um other things and i think that's the same for all of us in life you know some people are just going to be able to naturally talk like yourself, without thinking, without preparing. Others, like me, if I do a, a speech, if I do a, a conference, I'm knee deep in research for <laughs> months and months on end. And then there's notes and cues and things everywhere because that's just not the way my memory works. Um, I'm slower of speech. Now, something that's very interesting to me is, of course, the old legends or let's just say local legends more correctly of cryptids within first nations folklore within the mohawk nation are there a few things that you can tell us about some of the the, the well-known cryptids or things that even perhaps talked about or cited today sure yeah i'd like to start with some of the historical oral traditions that would have focused on what are called stonish giants or the uh, the stone giants. These were apparently large statured individuals 
who would come in contact with our people, whether through trading or territoriality. And they, in order to make themselves more formidable, would basically encase themselves in sand and rocks, which they were able to lay in. And it kind of formed a, a, a texture in their, on their skin. And that made them supposedly impervious to arrows and spears. Wow. Now, we had a much greater range of, of freedom in our territorial dealings two centuries ago as compared to now. So the question is, what happened to these stonish giants? And I think the argument that I've heard from traditional people that I've queried on, and again, they take me serious mm -hmm. because they know, you know, I waited a long time before I showed my interest in the paranormal and in the Fortean sciences, mm -hmm. because I didn't want to look like I was exploiting the opportunity that I had. You know, I've kind of served my internship here or my, my apprenticeship. Yeah. So now I can kind of do the things I'd like to do. And these stonish giants aren't in areas that we're in control of or that we're frequently in. So those are kind of missing from our, our timeline now. Those aren't there. Mm -hmm. Now, we talk about the Lake Champlain creature, which mm -hmm. Scott has been pursuing now for upwards of three decades. Mm -hmm. I'm probably the closest of the, of the Champlain Zoological Inquiry Group to actually living by the lake, although I'm about three hours from it. Which mm. isn't bad, but you know, you're still, you're kind of, you know, you have to get to there. And then, and, and sure. I have an older vehicle. I have a 20 year old lorry. So today I put a new radiator on it. The, awesome. the vehicle, yeah, it's the vehicle. It's still well, going. It's still Fantastic. going. There, there's, there's more new parts on it than probably old parts. The frame has had to be welded. And unfortunately, that's a weakness in that, that vintage of, of, of the American vehicles. Mm. But it served the purpose to get me from one point to another. And, and I stayed in the vehicle when I was with Scott there when we were doing our, our uh, Champlain searching there in June. When I bring up the Champlain creature, though, that has been recognized from some of the earliest journaling that was done by Samuel de Champlain. Champlain mm -hmm. And he referred to it as like a toothy kind of a creature. Mm. If we think about that from a step back, it might be a gar a gar family kind of fish and and who knows what the population was of those creatures at the time uh for him to be there but just imagine there was no motor vehicles at all on the lake so a canoe would probably have been a stimulant if there was something there and they may have been easier to come up to it because the paddle isn't going to chop their head off like with a propeller might and the noise Yes, the noise. So there, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I believe there were more interactions with whatever is in the lake with when our people and the Algonquins were in other people that were in that area that they would have also come into some encountering with it. And if it if it breached the surface, it may have flipped canoes over. And some canoes were so long, you know, they they were designed to be floated. If you tried to pick mm -hmm. them up from a central point, they might break in half. So there's a lot of things there that I think when you when you when you hear these legends, you have to look at it with a little bit of, um, a, you know, they say real politic. I, I kind mm. of say with a real narrative style. Yeah. Imagine if you were there now. I'm a believer not to divert too much from our discussion here. Sure. I'm a believer that eventually we're going to be able to make technology that will allow us to see at least to the depths that the sun 
sunlight is going into the water. Mm. Imagine what that's going to do in terms of mm. allowing us to monitor, say with a drone, you leave a drone in an orbit, maybe even with a FLIR camera, mm -hmm. and, then, and then use that as an aerial observation point with being able to see below the surface. I think you're going to have some success uh, in determining some of the things that are in the lake because it's just not as deep as, say, Loch Ness and some of those other areas. Loch Ness would be a harder one to crack because of well, the, yeah. the murkiness of the water. It's just you know? so murky. I've been there several times, and uh, Loch Morro is a lot better. It's actually mm -hmm. clear. You can see the bottom. We're, we're shallow enough to see the bottom. And there are mm -hmm. stories and sightings there, but Loch Ness, it's just a few feet below the surface. It's completely black. And in fact, when you stay in the hotels surrounding there, it's because of the peat runoff in the hills. When you use the taps, when you turn the taps on, the faucet on, the water is brown. Now it's, it's perfectly healthy and wonderful, but it's peat stained. Even the tap water, the faucet mm -hmm. water is, is peat stained. Mm -hmm. And um, if you fill up a, a bathtub with that stuff, you'd be like, okay, so that's what we're looking at out there. Sure. Times a hundred. Yeah, sure. Impossible. Now, if, if I can direct you to an area where I actually spent time, which was on the Blackfeet Reservation in Montana. Now, the Blackfeet are similar to us in that their people are also in Canada as well as the U.S. Uh -huh. When you go to the other side of Glacier National Park, which is predominant in that area, the Rockies, you get to Flathead Lake. And I don't know if you're aware of the Flathead Lake monster, uh -huh. but it is very clear water there. And mm. Scott has indicated that's a dream of his to go there mm. and be able to take a crack at that one because it's considered to be fairly commonly um, experienced for people mm. in that area. And that one goes way back with the Native Americans, the, mm. the, the people that lived on that side of the, the Glacier National Park. So I only mentioned that sort of as a border area mm. in addition to the First Nation Native American connections. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, did, did you hear from the, the Blackfeet tribe if they had a name for the Flathead Lake Monster? Is there, I've only ever heard of it referred to in that sense, not, never the original name. Yeah, um, I'd have to consult some notes on yeah. this one. Yeah. Um, uh, there's a library there, Flathead Community College, and mm -hmm. there's a very friendly librarian uh, that I came in contact with before who's actually a forest ranger in the summer. Mm -hmm. So he was unique.